I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes first from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was the Son of God. And then from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Okay, thanks, Susan. So good morning. Uh, I'm Jonathan, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. And we're in the middle of this series on the Apostles' Creed. We've come to the section on Jesus' humiliation. That would be the words, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Uh, he descended into hell. 
the centerpiece really of the creed, and if you'll uh, take the insert that you should have received in your worship folder, uh, the, the outline is there. I'm just going to read this little introductory piece to you. The centerpiece of the creed is the section on Jesus. It's the longest, uh, and it's both his humiliation and his exaltation, which we'll look at next week. Uh, this is also known, this little section, as his passion. Uh, the last week of his life was known as his passion week. Uh, and when you think about someone's passion, uh, it's what drives them. It's what gets them up in the morning. It's what excites them. And so the, the question comes, uh, what's yours? What's your passion? Uh, at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of Christianity is the founder of the faith suffering and being killed for the sake of his people. We sang about it a few minutes ago, uh, fix my eyes on the founder and finisher of my faith. Uh, your passion is what lights you up. Jesus' passion was what lit him up. And this work to get to the end, not that the other 33 or so years, whatever it was, exactly didn't light him up, but as he got to the end, and he could sort of see the finish line, uh, he really got passionate. Part of the wonder of the Christian faith is that it promises when you get tied to Jesus, his passion becomes your passion too. And your life begins to, we've talked about this before, uh, if you are new to Christianity, new to the Bible, uh, new to even Redeemer, we do believe that a Christian's life takes the shape of Jesus' life. Uh, both in the, the first 33 years and in that last week as well. So we're going to look at each piece uh, of, of this section of the creed. Every piece is necessary because the creed is a summary declaration of everything you have to believe in order to be a Christian. So every phrase matters because Christianity stands or falls on the things taught in the creed. Okay? Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. If it doesn't, I hope it will make sense as we, as we uh, continue to move through this. So three pieces of it this morning. His suffering, his death, his descent. Okay? And that's what I'm going to look at. And in each of those, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to highlight a little bit about it, but also uh, answer the question, what difference does it make? What does it matter? What does it matter that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? What does it matter that he died in our place, that he really died? And then what does it matter, this descent into hell? What does it mean? Uh, and I, I know there's uh, some confusion about that. There's concern about that uh, and, and so forth. A lot of people struggle to, to say it or struggle to, to know why uh, we say it. Uh, and so hopefully a little bit of explanation there, but also what difference does that make? As well, So those three things. First, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, you notice Pilate's name is the only other name mentioned in the creed? He's the only other uh, name that actually gets mentioned. And why is that? Well, if everything is significant, 
Christianity is a faith that places immense importance on events that took place in real time and real space. The Jesus we are talking about lived in real history. That's part of the reason why, as it was formed, they said he suffered under Pontius Pilate, this real guy. And part of the point of this is God's work is a part of history. Stan talked about this last week. He has actually moved in and actually worked in actual space and time. Uh, Christianity isn't just a feeling or an experience that you've had, although it is that. It's not just a philosophy or a worldview on which you base your life and make ethical decisions. It is that too. But it declares that God has acted. And in fact, God's action in history provides a mechanism for real hope because it's easy to despair. Easy to despair how broken the world is. Barry mentioned a few things about how broken the world is. You're reminded of it every day. Uh, He serving in the judicial system is reminded of it every day. It's, it's, It's broken. It's massively broken. Nothing seems to work right. And we can just become overwhelmed by the tragedy and sadness that's all around us. But the creed reminds us, a real man named Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire, really indicted a real man named Jesus of Nazareth. And this was God's doing. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that it was Jesus who, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Pilate famously oversaw the killing of Jesus, but we all contributed, right? Certainly not everyone in the crowd in Jerusalem that Peter's talking to in Acts chapter 2 was present for Jesus' trial and crucifixion, but Jesus speaks to, or excuse me, Peter speaks to them as if they were all there. He says, you did this. Um, We were all there too, because our sin killed him. In fact, one could see or say that the miscarriage of human justice was put in motion by the need to satisfy divine justice. So the miscarriage of human justice was, was part of satisfying divine justice. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak or say a little bit more on that in a few minutes. Nevertheless, Jesus' suffering was due to our sin. It should rattle us then a bit, actually, when we recite the words, he was, uh, excuse me, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered for what? Suffered why? Your sin, my sin, matters so much that it got Jesus killed. So it should sober you. It should sober me. Uh, and, and if you declare, and this is, this is kind of what, what difference does it make? And I've been sitting on this a lot this week. For various reasons, but if you declare that you believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, then then you are owning your role in putting Jesus on trial and ultimately on the cross, which means you are owning that your sin nailed him there. We sing that, how deep the Father's love for us. It was my sin who nailed him there until it was accomplished. You're owning your failure to keep God's standards. You're owning your Self-concern, you're owning that it took a real act of God in real history to save you. You're owning that in reality, you are way worse than you let on. You're owning that in reality, you're way worse than you let on. You're way worse than the people around you realize or think. And that's part of our problem. We don't really want everybody to know how bad we really are. 
how wicked and corrupt do you think you need to be for God in the flesh to spill his blood for you? Pretty wicked and corrupt. Uh, I was talking to a friend, actually, even yesterday, and, you know, he was lamenting about some things that uh, just weren't, weren't right. And he was like, you know, how do you stand up there? How are you going to stand up there tomorrow and, and look at us? Gosh, we just, uh, you think, are we ever going to get it together? Let, let, me, let me just tell you that the difference between the two feet or two and a half feet higher than you that I am at the moment matters absolutely nothing in terms of uh, my sense of, would you just figure it out and get it right? Because he was driving and he was getting a little aggravated with some of the traffic. Well, <laughs> those of you who know me, or just go back and listen to any sermon in the last eight years that has my name next to it uh, on the app, uh, you'll probably hear a story. I said, the reason that I can do that is I, I'm, I'm exactly like you. I'm just as awful. So to say my sin caused him to suffer under Pontius Pilate means you're owning all of those things. But, but, you're also giving up your rights to judge or measure the sins of others. The truth is the great leveler the great humbling truth of all truths for every single person in the room. All of us are, as the membership vows Rick and Kelly took a few minutes ago remind us, all of us are justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, but for what? His mercy. And here's the thing. It's so, so critical for us to remember in our life together as a church. I mean, listen, we we read uh, uh, Second Chronicles, I think it was 30. 32 on Friday, 33, is the story of Manasseh, okay? And if you got a chance to read that, you know how bad Manasseh was? The guy was awful. He was so bad that he did the ultimate in evil and wickedness in that day. He sacrificed who? His kids, okay? I, I mean, can you imagine sacrificing your children to another god? It wasn't even a real God, okay? Later in the chapter, though, what happens is the Assyrians come and they're breaking in. And what does Manasseh do? He humbles himself. And what does the Bible say? God heard his plea and what? Forgave him. So God can forgive a man who sacrificed his children, okay? The second you and I forget... Uh, that we, that, that our sin was the cause for him to suffer under Pontius Pilate, the second we forget that, it is the opening for you to make a bigger deal out of everyone else's sins than yours. And what it'll do is it'll turn you into a person who holds grudges, who keeps records of wrongs, who doesn't bear with people for seasons of struggle, even years of the same sin. They struggle with the same sin for years. Can you bear with them? Maybe even against you. Not necessarily against others. Maybe it's against you. Years and years. You won't be able to own up to and even laugh at what my friend calls your own doofusness. Your frailty. Because you'll be taking yourself so seriously because you've forgotten that Jesus Christ suffered because of you. And it will make you a self-righteous critic. In other words, someone who doesn't behave as if they believe they really are a sinner. 
when you have someone or you have multiple someones like that in a community of sinners, it will shut down the ability to be honest and real. It will make everybody hide. It will make everybody fearful because they're so scared that this someone or someone's might get a hold of their bad record and they'll shout it from the rooftops and make a bigger deal about it than it should be because that person or persons have forgotten. It perpetuates fear, it perpetuates posturing, and just an all-around fakeness. Ugh. Doesn't that sound gross? I hate that. I hate it in myself. Uh, I hate it in the people who are close to me. And I just long for us to be (laughs) as free enough to say, you have no idea. You think I'm that bad? Oh, I did that. But you want to hear some other things that I've done? Not in a braggadocious way or not to try to outsend one another. But just to remind one another that he suffered under Pontius Pilate because of my sin. That's how serious God takes it. Let's go a little further and look at his death, okay, in light of that. This is a further preventative against what I was just talking about, his death. In, in Leviticus chapter 16, okay, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement is described for Israel's worship. If you haven't read the book of Leviticus, um, well, get a source of caffeine uh, and, and sit down and do that. I think you'll, you'll, uh, you'll enjoy it, but you need the caffeine because it gets a little boring at times. But Leviticus 16, if you don't read any of the rest of the book, just go to that chapter. And it describes the Day of Atonement. And it's a helpful background to understand how Jesus' work solves in a permanent way what Aaron and the Levites were charged with addressing temporarily. And on the worship folder, I'm, I'm going to park on uh, the, the last two on the, uh, the insert there, 1 Peter 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Those are gonna, the ones I'm going to reference, just so you know. But two goats are used. One was killed as a sin offering, and that was to satisfy the wrath of God for the sin of the people. The other was the scapegoat. That's literally what they called it. And it was set free and sent into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people, literally because the priest was supposed to put his hands on the goat and confess all the sins of the people, as well as his own. And then they would send it out into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of their guilt and shame. And so the chapter's illustrating the need for a substitute, okay, something to absorb the wrath of God in the place of the people. But it's also illustrating something to remove their guilt and shame. In fact, the entire Bible teaches everyone is under the curse of sin, under the wrath of God. It's blocking our access to him to be able to get back into his presence, to experience his blessing and his goodness and so forth. But it also teaches we're guilty and we're ashamed. That's part of the problem that I was addressing earlier, why we don't want to admit how bad we really are, because we're ashamed, right? Um, But the Bible says... Both of those dynamics get solved, get fixed, if you will, in the death of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we learn his death accomplishes in one act what it took two goats to do. Okay, And they did that, by the way, yearly, annually. They had the Day of Atonement as a big deal. They had to go through all of that rigmarole once a year. The Bible says Jesus did it one time for all of human history done okay 
for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, meaning Jesus Christ became the sin offering. The one who is killed to appease the wrath of God, but also the one cast out to remove guilt and shame. Yes, as Drew likes to say, that is a moment for a thank you great. Um, It is. Because he, just one of him, took what it took two goats to do, and and they had to do it every year. He did it one time. One time. 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 18. Look there with me. For Christ also suffered, how many times? Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He suffered and died once. He, Peter says the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. That is, he substituted himself for us. But then what does Peter go on to say his death accomplished? He says he did it in order to bring us to God, to life. Jesus' last words on the cross were, I have traversed the infinite distance between you and God. There is not an inch left I've done everything necessary to bring you into the Father's arms. There's not one thing left for you to do. I've done it completely. It is absolutely and utterly finished. There's nothing else for you to do at all, period. Do you believe that? I swear to you, if you believe that, it will radically, radically change your life. Just if you believe that you're worse than everybody else in the room, that will radically change your life too. If you could summarize Christianity into one word, it would be, to die, which is the Greek word for it is finished. But it doesn't just mean it's finished. There's other kind of nuances to that word. It really means something like, I've done it. I've accomplished my mission. So according to tradition, when Buddha died, his last words were, strive without ceasing. Okay? According to tradition. But the last words of Jesus are, don't you dare strive. I've done all the striving. Religion says, finish the work, but the gospel says, receive the finished work. Religion says, if you finish the work, someday God might give you acceptance and love and blessing, but the gospel says, receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you get love and acceptance and all that blessing now, immediately, fully, completely, totally. So how do you deal with the nagging desire to show yourself worthy of having received it, How do you deal with floating guilt and shame? How do you deal with a guilty conscience? Because we've all got one, right? At times it it sort of waxes and wanes. There's times when you're dealing with it more acutely than others. And you may be in one of those times now or you may have passed through one of those times. Or tomorrow you're fixing to go right back into another one. We don't know that yet. Only the Lord does. So how do you deal with that? Well, typically in one of two ways. You can, the irreligious approach deal with it the, the, the way that's popular in our culture and say, well, there really is no right and wrong. And so you just try to forget it, to numb it, to ignore it, to pretend like it's not really not that big of a deal. The more religious approach, the one popular with Christians and good people, uh, is, is to try and make up for that guilt by trying harder. And everyone is dealing with some level of shame as a result of things that they've done or haven't done. More, more often, usually, what they have done. And so you can either distract yourself from your sin and shame by pointing out everyone else's. One of my favorites. Why can't all these people drive like me? 
And in that moment, it's, why can't you be on time, right, is what they would say back to me, because I'm late, and so I'm rushing, right? So you can, you can, you can distract yourself from your sin by, by pointing out everybody else, or you can fixate on yours so much that you become paralyzed by it. And a lot of us are here too, right? The voice of Satan's accusing you becomes absolutely deafening. And you are just, you, you, you are burdened and weighed down because you are listening to him. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death in our place, handles both the denial of sin and the trying hard to overcome it. It says, you're a really big sinner, but it says Jesus is a really bigger savior. Sorry, I can't make that a little bit more complex uh, in terms of language. Really big and really bigger. But, I mean, that's pretty much it. It says, you stand in his righteousness, guilt-free and shamelessly. You have no more guilt. There's no more shame. Not only that, God is singing over you. He's not mad at you anymore. Man. So, consequently, Christians should be the most humble the least self-righteous, and yet the most joyful, the most fun, the most relaxed people on earth. So the people at Grove Roots having the most fun should be the Christians. Not because of necessarily what they serve at Grove Roots, but because of what's going on in the heart and the way that they live. Okay, lastly, and then I'll be done, and this is relatively short. Thanks for sticking with us this morning. Um, with, uh, with the Riley family. Wasn't that fun? Such a blessing uh, with, uh, with Rick and Kelly and, and their kids. But let me thirdly and lastly say something about his descent. He descended into hell. Susan read from uh, Mark 15. It's the first paragraph there on your insert. A uh, very famous and well-known piece of the gospel, something we meditate on usually every year around Easter time or on Good Friday. Um, where did this come from? Well, it was added a couple of hundred years later. It wasn't with the original creed, this statement, he descended into hell. And what they were trying to accomplish with it, most scholars believe, is just, a, just an additional way to sort of prove, because they were facing a lot of heresy in the first uh, few hundred years of the church's existence, they were just trying to prove or restate another way that he really died. Okay. Because the Greek word that's used is Hades, and it means the grave or the place of the dead. He descended into hell, into Hades rather, the, the, the place of the dead. He really did die. It doesn't use the word Gehenna, which is the place of torment. Incidentally, a word that Jesus used regularly to talk about hell. Um, so they're probably battling these heresies. He really died. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't appear to die. His heart really stopped beating. His brain waves really stopped doing this. They were flat. He was dead. Um, and the necessity of this is uh, coming out of the Old Testament as well. One place in particular I want to point you to. It's Isaiah 59. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So the necessity of Jesus descending into hell was, the necessity of Jesus doing all of this work that we're talking about this week, is he had to be separated and forsaken by his father so that you and I could be brought in and adopted into the family. He was excluded so you and I could get included. And there was no other way to do that. 
Uh, I, I want to quote, I, I meant to put this up there, I apologize, but I want to read uh, a few words from a guy named Leslie Newbigin. He said this, God's wrath does not bring salvation. It does not bring reconciliation between man and God, nor does it give to men a new nature free from sin. Unless God's mercy and grace are also stirred to save, there can be no salvation. But how can mercy and grace go together with wrath? How can God save the sinner while at the same time resisting and destroying his sin? That is the key question. How can he do both? Save the sinner while at the same time destroying his sin. That is the terrible problem that sin creates. Well, how does he solve it? The gospel is the good news that he has done so, that mercy has triumphed over wrath, that there is a way for sinful men to be reconciled with a holy God. And it's because Jesus Christ himself experienced hell in the sense that he was separated and God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, Dad? Uh, I want to finish with the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, It's question number 44. It addresses this phrase. It's so helpful and down to earth, and it it helps us address the question of so what, or what difference does it make? Why does the creed add he descended into hell? The answer is, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So why does it matter? Well, Jesus' separation and forsakenness serves to assure us, okay? It serves to assure us. That's the answer. To assure us that when we're in the midst of suffering or confusing trial, God isn't mad at us. He hasn't left us. He hasn't forgotten us. No matter where you are in that, whether you're going through something currently or in the recent past or distant past, wherever it is that you're going down the road, if you are tied to Jesus, then the fact that he descended into hell assures you that wherever you go, he goes with you. In his descent into hell, we find the sustaining reminder that whatever we face in our lives, whatever tastes of hell we may know, our Lord has been there and done that. There is nowhere in life that we can go that he has not been, and there is nothing that we can face in this world or the next that is worse than what he has faced. Do you hear that? There is nothing in this world or the next that we can face There's nowhere we will go in this life where he has not been. And that alone would be something remarkable, but it doesn't stop there. For not only has he been there and done that, but he has promised to be there and do that. Wherever it may may be, whatever it may be, with us to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. Uh, I would just draw your attention back to the the, the song we sang um, earlier. Uh, I think it was Rejoice. Uh, listen, listen to that song again today, again and again and again, because he's especially in suffering. To know he descended into hell is the assurance that assures us he's with us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how amazing it is, how humbled we are by the reality that you suffered under Pontius Pilate for our sin, that you were crucified in our place to satisfy Uh, the wrath of God, but also uh, to rid us of guilt and shame. 
you accomplished in one work what it took two goats to do for the people of Israel repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And so in some ways we have no words. In some ways we, we, are, we are really speechless. But we must say thank you. Thank you for really dying instead of us. Thank you for really descending into hell and experiencing the God forsakenness of having to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you, you could assure us that no matter where we go, no matter what we experience in you, you are with us, you go ahead of us, and you've been uh, before us. So assure us this morning, no matter where our hearts are, no matter where our lives are, assure us this morning uh, and, and, and convict us and renew us and all the other things you promised to do. Lord Jesus, come and do those things even now as we sing. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, as you go, I hope uh, you're filled with hope uh, for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is uh, when you cling to him, uh, he clings back. Uh, and all the different ways in which we just sang, uh, describing him, just so, so beautiful. Uh, so have a picture of that in your mind as you go from here. Uh, as well as these words that I get to say over you. Because again, the Father's hand was raised over Jesus in wrath, so that now I'd raise my hands over you and declare peace. Uh, and that's good news. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.